chorus of that song reads this way. Oh, your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins with you. There's a reason why we chose that song, Death Was Arrested, as the first song of our first chapel of the brand new 2019-2020 school year. You see, we believe that it powerfully captures our theme for this year, which is this, a new thing. We believe, I believe, and I hope you believe with me, without a doubt, that God is going to break in and do incredible new things among us this year, and I cannot wait to see how he does it. A verse that drives at what we are hoping for in this space and beyond on our campus this year is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, and that verse reads this way. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has become. Now may that be true among us over and over again this year. Oh, also, I'm new. Hi. <laughs> if you haven't met me yet, my name is Paul Brandis. I'm the new chaplain here at Sterling College. I started about six minutes ago, so bear with me as I get up to speed. I'm a 2011 graduate of this institution, and I couldn't be more excited to serve you this year. I'm married to Ashley, who's a 2009 graduate, and we've got two sons. I keep telling Dennis they're future graduates. Uh, Bevan is four, and Owen is two. At this time, the band is going to lead us, and, and I'd like to ask you to stand, because this next song that we're going to sing is call and response, and I know they would love it if you joined in on the response. So this, the band and choir have one more song for us, and then I'm going to come back out and share some more words with you from God's word. But I'd like to open up our year in prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, thank you that you bring new life out of old. Thank you, Father, that new life is possible in Jesus. Thank you for the newness of this year, Lord. Thank you uh, that I'm new, that I get to be here back in this place, a place that I love so much and that made such a positive impact upon my life when I was a student. I pray for each and every one of these students and faculty members and staff that is here, Lord. We need you desperately. We can't do it this year without you. We're going to fail if we try. So help us to rely on you. Maybe some of us don't even know you yet. Lord, draw those of us in that arena to you. Lord, we all need you because new life is found only in you. As we sing this song, asking this question of whether or not your son Jesus is worthy and finding out that he is, may we sing it as one new voice together. Amen.
God, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the truth that those words gave us. That when we ask these questions, God, are you worthy of all blessing, honor, and glory? We can confidently respond that you are. That's an incredible thought, God. And I pray that as we focus this year on a new thing, being a new thing, being a new creation, God, that we take those words as truth, that they underpin our every move this year, that we are encouraged and challenged by that truth, and that it shapes the ways that we move through life, not only on this campus, not only in our studies, not only in our activities, but in every facet, whether it's through friends, family, community, um, on campus or off, God. We thank you again so much for who you are and the truth of who you are. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I know that all of you are just getting to know me. In fact, a number of you just met me four minutes ago. But this morning, I do have a confession that I need to make to all of you. By nature, I am a deeply selfish person. It's just true. By nature, I am a deeply selfish person. Now, I think, I hope, I pray for my wife and children's sake and for all of you as well that I'm growing, that I'm changing, that I'm getting better, but this is still a struggle to be sure. And what's more, my battle with being self-centered and selfish is a lifelong struggle. And folks, I brought pictures that prove it. I have pictures for you this morning from my 12th birthday party. Are you ready for them? I don't know that you are. And actually, I reached out to my mother, Janice Brandis, to ask her for pictures from this party. And while she was going through our old photo album, she found this gem right here. Come on, I got it. I know I do. Oh, boy. That's me in the middle. You were not ready for rec specs this morning. I know you weren't. Okay, this is not from... Uh, my birthday party, this is just a fun picture that I wanted to show you this morning. You know how some people are cool from in middle school? That was my friend Matt, but, but not me so much. So let's get that picture off on the screen, and I've got another one for you. Here it is, next picture. Now, those glasses are slightly better. They're a little better than the rec specs, but I don't want you to miss it. Look closely at the cake at the bottom of the picture. It says, all about Paul. All about Paul. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, for my 12th birthday party, the theme of the party was me. (laughs) The games were about me. The activities were about me. And all of my friends ate a cake that was like oddly and weirdly about me. All about Paul has basically been my life motto, and I am ashamed to admit that. But here's what I'm realizing. If ever so slowly, here's what I'm realizing. My life only works if I make it not about me. My life only works if I make it not about me. And actually, it's the same for you too. Your life only works if you make it not about you. And let's keep pushing. Let's keep pressing into that. New life. New life, which is what all of us are actually looking for, is only found through Jesus. New life is only found through Jesus. In fact, that's why this morning we're launching a seven-message teaching series called The New Life. You heard me read from 2 Corinthians 5 earlier. That's our verse for the year. 
And I thought that it would be interesting for us to take the first couple months of this school year to unfold all that the Bible has to say about the new life that is possible in Christ Jesus. And listen, I know. I know that this claim, new life is only found in Jesus, is a bit controversial. In fact, a bunch of you may have already started to tune me out because, again, I get it. This is a super preacher type of statement to make, isn't it? I mean, you might be thinking, of course the new chaplain is going to say that about Jesus. It's very on brand for him, right? And I get that. I get that. But consider this with me for a moment. Consider this with me for a moment. What if that's true? What if that's true? Now, for some of you, that is a really big if. That's a really big if, but what if this statement is true? The implications, if this statement is true, are massive. Wouldn't you agree? Which is why I think that we ought to unpack it. What do I mean by this? New life is only found in Jesus. Well, to unpack this statement, we're going to lean on a passage from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24. And that verse reads this way. I've got it on the screen so you can follow along. Verse 23. And Jesus said to all, and Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now in this verse, in Luke 9, 23, what Jesus is doing is he's giving this message to a crowd, possibly to thousands of people. And he's laying out what it takes for people to throw their lot in with him. He's outlining what it takes for you to be able to say, I'm with Jesus. And just before this, just before this verse, he had spent time with his disciples. And he had confessed to them that he was the Savior that they were waiting for. He was going to be king. In fact, he is king already. But he had also confessed to them that even though he was the Savior, even though he was the Christ... Even though he was the one that they were waiting for, he was going to go the way of suffering. He was going to go the way of rejection and death. This would have been shocking to his disciples. They would not have seen this coming. And then Jesus broadens it out to the whole crowd and he says this. He says, the only way to be on my team is to go my way. I've just told you what's going to happen to me. And my followers ought to expect the exact same treatment, self-denial that leads to rejection, suffering, even death. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Jesus' pitch to get people to follow him. And this is the punchline for us in 2019, 2,000 plus years later. Not one thing has changed. Despite what you have may, heard, may have heard to the contrary, Luke 9.23 is still an excellent summary of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, which I know begs an important question. Why would anyone do it? Why would anyone choose to follow Jesus? He does not do that great a job at marketing it, does he? If he was in our communications and marketing department in a class here at Sterling, he would have gotten an F, right? Self-denial, the cross, rejection, death. Wow, what an offer, Jesus. Where do I sign? And this brings us back to our big idea for this morning. New life is only found in Jesus. Because you see, if you look closely at these verses, the reasons why, 
the reasons why one might choose willingly to follow Jesus reveal themselves. The, pop, the promises pop through. In this verse, Luke 9.23, Jesus gives three commands. Commands that when we follow them lead to life. And not just future life, but they lead to life right now. They lead to the life that all of us are desperately looking for. Here they are. Deny your self-control, embrace your Christ-centered suffering, and follow Jesus wherever he goes. All three of these commands find their grounding in Luke 9.23. And that verse again reads, it's an important one. And Jesus said to all, if anyone, this invitation is available to anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We're tracking right along with Jesus' order. First command, deny your self-control. Now Jesus says self-denial, but I think it's important to add the other two qualifying words that we have here. Because deny yourself, okay, but deny yourself what? Well, I think if we step back and look at the broader teachings of Jesus about following him, about discipleship, what we see is that what he wants us to deny ourselves is control, a total surrendering of control. Step one in following Jesus is to hand over the car keys of your life to Jesus and willingly and happily and joyfully get into the passenger seat instead of the driver's seat. Now, this Jesus-centered self-denial is not just denying certain things, though it can involve that, and it's not a pathological self-denial, which ends up being a more warped and wicked approach to living an even more self-centered life, where you pretend that it's not about you, but it really is all about you. It's certainly not a martyr complex or some version of beating yourself down. Jesus-centered self-denial, here it is. Jesus-centered self-denial is about a daily recognition that your life runs better when you're not in charge of it. Jesus-centered self-denial is about a daily recognition that your life runs better when you're not in charge of it. And here's why your life and my life run better when we're not in charge of it. Here's why. This next statement is not a cheery thought, but it is true. And the quicker and sooner that you realize this, the better it is. Any control that you think you have is actually an illusion. Any control that you think you have over your life is actually an illusion. Because think about it with me. Does any of us in this room know what next year holds? Does any of us in this room know what next month holds? Does any of us in this room know what tomorrow holds? Or, or even what the next minute holds? Of course not. And because the future is hidden from our view, any control that we're grasping onto, any control that we think we have could slip through our fingers faster than we dare to realize. Any control that you think you have over your life is actually an illusion. And it's interesting to me that I happen to find out that Lin-Manuel Miranda and the hit musical Hamilton agree with me. Come on. I know, right? I know I'm not the only one obsessed with this, right? And when I dove in, I dove in deep, right? 
I listen to the soundtrack in painstaking detail. There's a companion book that has all of the lyrics and has footnotes and has articles about the original cast. I read, not an exaggeration, every single word in that companion book while I listened to the soundtrack. Promises, I did, okay? And while I was reading this book, I came across this line, and it has gripped my heart, and it has refused to let go. It's while George Washington is singing to a young Hamilton during the Revolutionary War. Hamilton is chomping at the bit to be able to command soldiers, and Washington sings these lines to him. Now, as a gift to you, no, 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 as a gift to you, I'm going to refrain from singing this morning, all right? And I'm not going to rap either, okay? This is what Washington says. I was younger than you are now when I was given my first command. I led my men straight into a massacre. I witnessed their deaths firsthand. I made every mistake and felt the shame rise in me. And even now I lie awake knowing history has its eyes on me. And here's the money lines. Let me tell you what I wish I had known. When I was young and dreamed of glory, you have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? You have no control. And part of the reason why this gripped me so much is that in the companion book, there is a footnote, and I went to the footnote, and I read it, and in the footnote, Lin-Manuel says, this is the truest line that I wrote in the entire musical. According to Lin-Manuel, this is what the entire musical is about. The fact that you have no control. And it stopped me in my tracks. Because as you trace this theme through the musical, it provides an answer. This is the problem. The problem is that you and I don't have any control. What is the solution according to Hamilton? What's the solution? How do they solve this problem? Here it is. Basically, do the best that you can in this life, and if you do a good enough job, someone else will write your story for you so that it will carry on. That's the answer. Just do the best you can, and if you're good enough, maybe you'll be treasury secretary, maybe you'll have this incredible musical, maybe your wife will tell your story, and maybe... You know, 1,800 years from where you are, a couple hundred years from where you are, people will continue to talk about you. Just do the best you can. And I don't know about you, but I go, are you kidding me? That's the answer? That's the answer to this universal problem that none of us actually have control. Just try hard and hope that somebody's a good writer that comes after you and tells your story. That's the answer? And 1,800 years before Hamilton, 2,000 years before Lin-Manuel, Jesus comes along and says, there is a better answer. There is a better way. You don't have control anyway, so deny yourself control and hand it over to me. Command number one, deny yourself control. But Jesus continues. Command number two, embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Now, this is drawn from Jesus' call to his disciples to take up their cross daily. Now, it's hard for us to conceptualize this because the cross means something rather different to most of us, but we cannot overlook what this command would have meant to Jesus' original audience. 
to his original listeners, to the crowd that he was preaching to. This command to take up their cross would have been horrifyingly shocking, deeply offensive and utterly terrifying. Because you see, in Jesus' day, crosses were not beautiful gold necklaces that hung from necks. No, crosses were rugged trees that were strapped together so that ashamed and mocked prisoners could hang from them to their death. And this is the metaphor that Jesus has chosen to describe what it means to be one of his disciples. Why? Well, I think part of it is because Jesus knew that he would go that way. He knew he would go that way. But I think it's even more than that because you see the cross wasn't just a way to execute someone. It was also a way to publicly shame them. It was a way not to inflict just physical pain and anguish, but mental, emotional, and spiritual pain and anguish too. And it is here, in this place, in the command to pick up our crosses, that the high cost of following Jesus starts to become clear. Because yes, of course, self-denial of control is costly. I feel that for you, especially as college students. The last thing that I wanted to do, because I just got control, right? My parents had control, and I just got it. And now preacher man is telling me I have to give it up? I get that that's costly. But self-denial of control is nothing compared to the public shame of the cross, to the, to the public pain that's present in the cross. That is a whole nother level of costliness, isn't it? The cross. So much that I think there's only really one way to describe what Jesus is asking us to do in this command. Suffer. Suffer. What we see here in Jesus' call to bear our crosses daily is that suffering is baked into the cake of what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples. Now, please hear me this morning. I in no way, in no way want to minimize the suffering of any person in this room. Nor does Jesus. Neither myself or Jesus are interested in that at all. Embracing your suffering does not mean celebrating your suffering. It does not mean reveling in your suffering, not at all. But I do think it's possible if we search closely enough to see what Jesus is up to through the cracks in our suffering. And I believe that Joni Erickson Tata is an incredible example of this. At the age of 17, Joni was in an accident that caused her to become a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. She has been in a wheelchair from that moment on, and she has experienced incredible suffering, far more suffering than I can even begin to imagine. But we have to look closely here. Because we cannot miss something incredibly important about suffering. Do not miss this. People get it wrong all the time. There are different types of suffering. And it is incredibly dangerous to get them confused. You see, Joni's paralyzation is general brokenness suffering. General brokenness suffering. It is not the result of her sin. Which is a crazy idea that some people believe, unfortunately. But rather... Her suffering of being a quadriplegic exists because the reality is that our world is a deeply broken place and tragedies like Joni's accident 
and her resulting paralyzation exist in this world. You know them well. You know the tragedies that exist in this world. So Joni is suffering as a result of her paralyzation. Yes, she is. General brokenness, suffering. But you see, Joni is also a Christian, which means that there is another layer to her suffering that she has to grapple with. Because you see, in addition to wrestling with her disability, she also has to contend with the difficult truth that God has, for whatever reason, in his infinite wisdom, decided not to heal her. And that is where we get to the Christ-centered bit of our suffering in parentheses in this point. You see, Jesus, in inviting us to pick up our cross, is inviting us to a suffering that is unique to those who follow him. There is unique suffering that those of us who have decided to throw our lot in with Jesus are going to experience, right? Now, for Joni, she believes that God can heal her, that he has the power to heal her, but that he has chosen not to. That is Christ-centered suffering. And that reality is part of Joni's cross to bear each and every day. And my, does she bear it marvelously well. One time, one time she said, I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. Another time she said, I love this. She said, he has chosen not to heal me. You hear that? She believes that he can. So it's a choice. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Isn't that amazing? I'm not sure that I have faith like that. I don't know that I do, but, but Joni does. And it encourages me. She is not saying that her journey is easy, but she is embracing her suffering and turning to Jesus in the midst of that. Where and what can we learn from her example? For us, for you, Christ-centered suffering happens at work. It happens in your dorm room. It happens in your homes for some of you. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. Likely, you experience Christ-centered suffering as a result of that. Maybe you're the only Christian in your dorm room this year. Maybe you're the only follower of Jesus on your floor. I don't know. Christ-centered suffering can happen for us anywhere. And wherever we experience it, our call from Jesus is to embrace it just like he did. Jesus isn't saying it's easy. He's not minimizing the pain that he comes from it, but he is straightforward and honest about the call to embrace it. Pick up your cross. Embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Jesus continues. One more. Command number three. Follow Jesus wherever he goes. Follow Jesus wherever he goes. Or if we were to put it in Jesus' words, follow me, right? It's an invitation. Follow me. And really, this third command is a result of the first two. If you deny your self-control, and if you embrace your Christ-centered suffering, then congratulations, you will find that you are indeed following Jesus. But see, the trick is to follow him wherever he goes, no matter what. Well, that's not so easy, is it? Especially since Jesus has already made it clear that his way is the way of the cross, His way is the way of suffering, and so it is safe to assume that if you follow Jesus, he is going to require you to go to some difficult places. 
follow Jesus wherever he goes. The question is, will you go with him? Recently, no joke, this really happened, our four-year-old son Bevan, he's the bigger one on the right, he looked at my wife Ashley and he said, Mom, Mommy, I'll follow you wherever you go. Yeah, that was her reaction, right? Her heart melted, but then came the follow-up. After a moment's pause, he, he sort of turned his head and he looked at her and he said, except for the car wash, <laughs> right? Which, I mean, I get it. The car wash is terrifying. And now, you see, that's funny, but how often do we do exactly the same thing with Jesus? I know I do. Jesus, it's Paul here. Yeah, read your invitation in Luke 9.23 to follow you. Yes, I'll follow you wherever you go, except the car wash. But we know it doesn't work that way. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to negotiate. So, friends, let me ask you, where is your car wash? Where is Jesus leading you right now that you don't want to go? Where do you need to submit to him and begin to follow him? My guess is you probably don't have to think about it too long before you know. At least I know that's true for me. The question then becomes what we are going to do in response. And that is the question of this whole verse. What are you going to do in response? The new life only comes through Jesus. Here is how you get it. You deny your self-control. You embrace your suffering and you follow him. Here it is, friends. What are you going to do in response? And thankfully, Jesus does not leave us alone in that consideration. He gives us the big why of why you ought to say yes and why you ought to follow after him. We've been spending our whole time on verse 23, but go with me to verse 24. Jesus gives us the why of all of this. He answers why you should follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the punchline. Jesus promises us that what looks like death, self-denial, picking up our cross, that looks like death, but Jesus promises that what looks like death actually leads to life. What looks like death leads to life. So Jesus' way forward and the reward in doing so and why you should respond yes becomes crystal clear. Yes, friends, following Jesus is difficult. Yes, embracing our Christ-centered suffering is a task of enormous proportions. Yes, daily self-denial of control is terrifying. And yes, the world believes that this way of life, that the way of Jesus is death. The world thinks that we're crazy. The world perceives the Jesus way to be empty, void, and bankrupt, but the world is wrong. Oh, so wrong. The world's way is empty, void, and bankrupt. The world's way looks like life. It looks enticing. It is drawing all of us in, but the world's way is actually death. The world's way is actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It does not seem to make sense on the face of it, but friends, Jesus' kingdom, the upside-down kingdom, is the only one that is built to last. Every other kingdom will rise 
rise and fall. Jesus' kingdom is the only one that's never going anywhere. And here's how we know this is true. Here is how we can trust the promises of Luke 9.24, that if we lose our life for Jesus, we're actually going to find it. Here is what all of this hinges upon. We sung about it this morning. Death was arrested. The tomb is empty. Jesus lives and reigns again. Because you see, Jesus didn't say to us, did you notice this? He didn't say to us, go and die. Jesus says to us, come and die. Jesus says to us, follow me and die. Jesus never tells you to go somewhere that he hasn't already gone. And Jesus walked the way of the cross, did he not? Jesus picked up his cross and carried it as long as he could until he collapsed from exhaustion. And then he was nailed to that cross. He was murdered though he had done no wrong. He was killed not for his sins, for he had none, but for my sins, for your sins. He died the death that was meant for me and was meant for you, but he didn't stay dead, did he, friends? No. Three days later, he rose again, defeating death and proving once and for all that it is not a mistake to follow him. You will not regret it. Even though his way looks like death, it will lead to life and life eternal. Amen? Listen, friends, do you want to find new life? Then make it about Jesus and not about you. Because new life is only found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we know that to be true, that even though your way looks hard and scary and overwhelming and the cost is high, may we know that it leads to life and life eternal. May we believe that, Lord, and may our belief in that change the way we actually live so we can experience the eternal life that you offer and experience it now because we need it now, Lord. We believe that new life is only available through you, through you, Jesus. And we're grateful that it's possible because you lived, died, and rose again on our behalf. Help us, Lord, each and every one of us to translate that belief into a changed life. We need it. We pray all this. Amen.